In the inaugural episode of Cicatrices y Sanaciones, we discussed the wounds of Latinidad and the usefulness of the term Latinx as an unearthing of these wounds. Some of these wounds become tangible when we are the targets of racial, gendered, or sexual violence, like the heartbreaking murders of Adam Toledo, Jesse Hernandez, Micaiah Bryant, Eric Salgado, and Oscar Grant at the hands of police. But what about the wounds that we cannot see or touch? The ones that seem to have inexplicable origins. How do we address these voids? How do we name the nameless? We refer to these wounds as our soul wounds, and naming them is crucial for our collective healing. This is Cicatrices y Sanaciones by the Latinx Research Center at UC Berkeley, and in this episode, Stephanie Gutierrez-Rios narrates one of her soul wounds. Her journey helps us find a way to identify our own. It's my first semester here. As I take in all 1,200 acres of campus, I think back to my upbringing, my childhood summers within concrete apartment complexes, my adolescent winters spent with my cousins in Mexico, mis primos pleading that I translate pop lyrics and asking me starry-eyed if high school in California was really like the cringy dub scenes that they romanticized on big and small screens. I would cover my crooked smile with one hand and laugh. My high school zip code wasn't 90210, and even the jock archetype at my high school was lamentable. Our high school was so broke, we couldn't afford to maintain the football field, and thus hosted our home games at the local adult school. <laughs> no, Lily. It's not like on TV at all where I come from. But this? 300-foot ivory towers, marble-framed pools, gates the color of jade. This is everything we saw on TV. The pristine campus that I earned, one GED and 12 years in and out of community college later, I finally transferred. It took us lifetimes to get here. The University of California, Berkeley, the number one public university in the world. Just don't ask anyone from UCLA. I walked past South Hall, which looks like something out of Harry Potter, with its brick facade and rows and rows of tall windows, windows that round at the top like a mazapan cut in half. Walking around campus, Sometimes I don't know if I'm in a forest, Europe, the past. Deep East Oakland doesn't look like this. This day was unusually hot for Berkeley in all of its lush greenery. It wasn't a ponte sweater kind of afternoon anymore, so I peeled off my overpriced cow pullover, exposing my strong, brown, tattooed arms I needed a place to study that wasn't stuffy. 
I remember a classmate had taken me to the philosophy library earlier that week. It was quiet, it was dusky, and the perfect place to dodge the heat. As I attempted to submerge myself into an occulted space of supposed infinite knowledge, the person at the front desk swiftly burst my bubble, demanding my student ID. I clumsily fumbled through my wallet, the novenas my mama Lupe gives me for protection, mercado receipts proving I'm not a thief, and finally, my ticket to the world, my Cal ID. Nearby, the students at the long tables were silent, but their energy was loud. I felt their eyes on me as I found a space to read and placed my backpack on the floor. It's as if I could hear their thoughts while unzipping my backpack, tooth by tooth, my heart plummeting into my ribs with each beat. Something inside of me was falling into a familiar abyss. No matter how much cow merch I buy or what my ID says, this space isn't welcoming me. I feel this when UCPD lurks behind me. I see it in students who look like me, crying quietly into their homework assignments. And mi mamá with her endless to-do list. Trips to la carniceria, hand-washing her tenis. She would rather deal with dirt, lines, grime, anything to avoid sitting with the abyss. The abyss makes her feel more uncomfortable than mud. I hear it in my dad's voice, struggling in between cracks, out of breath from the weight of his own memories, fighting tears because his father was told by his father que llorar no es de hombres. ¿Qué es? Do other people feel it? Do you feel it? Abrázame y muérdeme, llévate contigo mis heridas, aviéntame. Shortly after the philosophy library incident, one of my ethnic studies courses assigned a reading that has lingered in my personal orbit to this day. Native Americans and the Trauma of History, written by Bonnie Duran, Eduardo Duran, and Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart. The text spoke of a needs assessment study of Native American people in the late 1970s that, among other things, showed they understood the effects of colonization as a spiritual injury. The authors referred to this spiritual injury as the soul wound. The soul wound can be characterized as historical trauma that those of us who come from colonized peoples have inherited through society and through our families. Or as Duran, Duran, and Braveheart state, Historical trauma and its effects are complex, a constellation of features that occur in reaction to multi-generational, collective, historical, and cumulative psychic wounding over time and across generations. Historical, unresolved trauma is intergenerationally cumulative, thus compounding the mental health problems of succeeding generations. We've heard of this wound by other names. Intergenerational trauma, 
Survivor's Child Complex, or PTSD. The field of epigenetics studies how our behaviors and environment literally affect the ways our genes work. And this, the soul wound, is the essence of the episode you are listening to. While the systemic violence many Latinx communities face are physical, such as children torn from their families and caged at the border, the effects of this system are not only physical and psychological, they are spiritual. We've been inheriting them for generations, and they remain present at the hands of ongoing racism. To deny our wounds is to deny our souls. To deny our souls is to perpetuate colonialism and the attempts to dehumanize us. On that account, I recognize my soul is wounded. Porque la vida no me dice nada Porque tengo temor a las miradas aquí Se va muriendo mi alma Y va creciendo ese vacío en mí Ready? I'm always ready. That's right. Pero este no es el sentimiento original. Oral tradition, research, and events on record in our lineage, such as the Valladolid debate of 1550, would support that the soul wound is the inheritance of colonialism. The systemic forces that play into the inheritance of my soul wound are huge. The kidnapping of people the enslavement of people, the colonization of people, the racialization of people, the plundering of our land, the burning of our books, the burning of our flesh, that violence, pain, and suffering, it didn't just disappear into thin air, just like we didn't disappear. I say people over and over again because I want and need to emphasize that we are people. And shouldn't that be so obvious? Going back to the Valladolid debate of the 16th century, Spanish philosopher Sepúlveda and priest de las Casas gifted themselves the luxury of debating for a year whether indigenous folks had souls or not, whether they were animal-like or barbarian-like, the outcome of that debate shifted the enslavement of indigenous peoples to the encomienda system, another form of forced labor. Now, some people might push back by saying that the encomienda system is a thing of the past. We live in a post-racism world, according to some. But the bracero farm workers of the 1940s transported like cattle, stripped, probed, humiliated, and sprayed with harmful pesticides have said otherwise in the Bracero History Archive of the Smithsonian. Uh, the trip, incidentally, uh, going back from Chihuahua to Juarez was a horrendous trip for them. It was by, by rail, and they were brought over from Chihuahua in cattle cars. Uh, I don't know how many stops they made, 
but it's it was about a seven hour trip uh if you can imagine packed in in, in rail cars uh and as i said before i don't know how, whether they made any stops to allow them to relieve themselves that part of the story i don't know on the u.s side of the border then i would feed them and they would eat anything poor devils so the first order of business was to disinfect them they would go through through uh there were there were they were formed in about four or five lines. They were they were go they were placed through a Quonset hut, hut, and they were asked to strip, and they were sprayed with a white powder all over their body, including their their hair, uh, their their facial hair, their uh, the hair on on their head, and even around uh, the low area. And then they were sent through contracting. Contracting wrote up all the contracts. And the contract was very, very extensive. I don't know whether anybody ever read it. I never read one. They consisted of about three or four pages of small print. And in English, mind you, I don't know that even the contractors read them. I don't know that even the farmers read them. But it was all legalese. After we would feed them, then we would send them through a selection line. We call it a selection line. And there the contractors or farmers, whichever would happen to be the case, would speak to them. And, and based on a very, very short interview, three or four questions, and depending on their response, they would choose the braceros. They would select them, and, and, uh, and they, were, they were considered then the property of that contractor or that farmer. And what about the farm workers of present day, laboring arduously through a global health crisis, wildfires, racism, for less than a fair or livable wage. I've never heard you talk about working in the field. That's something that you and I have never had a conversation about. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that? Uh... According to an article from the Center for American Progress. In terms of health equity and justice, the legacies of plantation slavery and Jim Crow and New Deal era policies weigh heavily on the farm worker population. Uh, like, 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 I, I don't know what I do. I just uh, drive a truck uh, on the streets, picking up trash. No, like when you worked in the field. Oh, in the field, picking pick, uh, letters and Tomatoes. Men in my family were braceros, uh, but we don't name them that. My it? father worked in the fields of Salinas, California, and we had never spoken of his experience. The experience, uh, no, no good. It's hard work. You had to get up early. Doesn't matter if it rains or shine, whatever you have to be working and pretty much all day, like bend over in your back, kind of like picking up stuff from the ground. Mm -hmm. It was hard, really hard. How old were you when you did that work? Oh my God, really young. Maybe started probably like, uh, maybe 14. Yeah. yeah, really young. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, it was real hard, real hard work. I 
I don't think I would do it over again, no way. It's too hard. Uh, feel sorry for the people that work in it, doing that type of job because it's real hard. I feel like that's something that we like never talk about. Is there any like specific reason why you don't talk about like when you did work in the field or why you've never talked to us about that? Well, I guess uh, because I don't know, I guess nobody asked me what, what was my first job or uh, I, I don't really like when I even think about it. Dimos todo lo que se nos dio. Nos dimos todo eso y mucho más para después reconocernos otra vez. Nos damos todo lo que se nos da. Nos damos todo eso y mucho más. But I made it right. I made a life for myself where I'm not picking gardenias like my mama Lupe or roses like my tias. I've never worked at Jack in the Box like my mom or picking lettuce like my dad. And there is absolutely no shame in any of this work. Yet the soul wound persists and tells me that maybe I would be more comfortable in those spaces. Because when I look around UC Berkeley, the proportion of Latinx students does not match the Latinx population of my neighborhood or my schools growing up. According to UC Berkeley's Division of Equity and Inclusion, In California, Latinx are roughly 38% of the population, while they are only 14% of undergraduate students at UC Berkeley. And I witness year-long debates on campus about increasing these statistics. Me and my indigenous DNA, my bracero DNA, my field worker DNA. This legacy, one of my professors named it a thingification, being treated, seen, and commodified. Brazos, arms, a body part only apt for labor. This construct was passed down to me. This is a wounded legacy. The institution is for minds, human minds. And historically, who is considered human when I'm only arms? Estudia. Estudia para que no tengas que trabajar como nosotros. The voices of our parents echo in back pains, in brazos. I studied and studied like I tried to study in the philosophy library. But I never heard, heal, mija, heal. Y brillas, y brillas tan lindo, y brillamos juntos, entre pestañas, divina, divina sonrisa, abrazo de luna, this is Cicatrices y Sanaciones by the Latinx Research Center at UC Berkeley. And you're listening to Stephanie Gutierrez Rios on The Soul Wound. Divina, divina sonrisa, abrazo de luna, divina sonrisa, abrazo de luna. 
It's not just me feeling away, weird, invisible, displaced, uneasy, melancholy with no particular trigger. My experience is a way to say that I'm one of many. The soul wound isn't unique to me. It's a part of Latinx identity. In that vein, the Latinx Research Center at UC Berkeley granted this production the opportunity to discuss the soul wound with Dr. Yvette Flores, UC Davis Professor of Chicanx Studies, Research and Licensed Psychologist. Dr. Flores is the author of Chicana and Chicano Mental Health, Alma, Mente y Corazón, The Mexican-American Experience, published by University of Arizona Press, in 2013. In this exchange, we were able to discuss trauma, inheritance, wounds manifesting, and healing. Well, history is important. Both the history that we learn from our families, but also the history that is not spoken. And there is a way in which we transmit our histories, particularly the wounding, el dolor, that has accumulated over generations when we don't talk about it. Because when we don't address these particular losses that we may have had, they become silent secrets that sometimes lead us to repeat patterns that we don't even know are patterns. As people of color on this continent, we all have histories of trauma. We were colonized. Our ancestors were physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually assaulted, violated. Yet, we survived. And I think it's important to hold both at the same time. We are people who have tremendous histories of trauma and we're also resilient, and we're also survivors. But the soul wounds that occur, that occur at the level of spirit, may be invisible to us. And so when we think about soul wounds, which is a, a wonderful concept of, of the Durans, that at the level of spirit, we hold the memories of what has happened across generations because the spirit is eternal. And when we grow up in a family that has a history of trauma, it affects how we parent, it affects how we relate to one another. And so we unwittingly may pass teachings that are imbued with trauma and create patterns that are not helpful, patterns that may be very dysfunctional. 
And so we need to learn to recognize them and we need to learn to name them so that we can heal them. We understand that the soul wound is something that is inherited from the trauma of colonization. And Dr. Flores further explained how this wounded legacy takes place. Yes, and you know, now we know because we have advanced science and technology that at a cellular level, trauma causes changes and that memories are encoded in different parts of the brain depending on the type of memory that it is. And some of these memories are not absolutely accessible in the moment. And this is where flashbacks come in. But for those of us that I think come from cultures and traditions where we are very connected to the ancestors. Sometimes the flashbacks are not ours. Sometimes the memories that appear are not ours, but actually come from our great, 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 great grandparents. So we have all of these cultural, historical, epigenetic memories in our bodies and in our minds and in our spirits, which can be very frightening. If we understand them, that we can embrace them and we can say, okay, I can learn from this. You know, what are the lessons? What are the lessons? But I think also um, it's transmitted, as I alluded to or mentioned, because we may develop ways of reacting to things that we learned from people in our families that may not be very helpful or adaptive in the present time. And again, because we don't always know our history and that origin of the family is not shared because there may be a lot of shame. There may be a lot of denial of all the racial influences that we have. We don't have access to the what happened before that may be influencing us in the present, but it's being passed down in the miedos, in, in the fears, in the, in the jokes and in the stories that families tell each other. After the explanation of inheritance, we were interested in the different ways in which the soul wound manifests, particularly in Dr. Flores' practice with Latinx communities. Yes, as, as you may know, I've been licensed as a psychologist in the state of California since 1986. And prior to that, in 1978, I was licensed as a marriage and family therapist. I've also been teaching for almost 40 years. And I see intergenerational trauma manifest not only with my psychotherapy clients, but also with my students. And if we use Western language, we can say a lot of the historical trauma manifest as anxiety, nervios, may manifest as persistent depression, feeling out of sorts, feeling that you don't belong, feeling that um, people are looking at you in particular ways that convey the message, this is not for you, whether it's an academic setting or a place of employment. Regardless of how many initials we have after our name, most Latinx I know carry within them these seeds of apprehension, a sense of not belonging, 
And for those of us who are immigrants, may be a bit more salient and that we may feel que no somos ni de aquí ni de allá. We don't belong here, we don't belong there, particularly those who migrated as children. And so we may see it as, okay, this is a person who's having difficulty adjusting. It's a student who was not well prepared to go to college and they're struggling. But if you go underneath the surface and really look at what are the conditions that are leading this young person who always did well in school, who got good grades, that suddenly is at a UC campus or a CSU campus or one of the myriad private universities and suddenly feel that they can't do it. It isn't that the person cannot do it. You know, there are all of the issues of structural racism that we deal with on a daily basis, but it's also this internalized sense of not being good enough, what some refer to as the imposter experience. Because the tapes begin to play in our heads what a teacher might have said, or a comment that was made by a family member. Ah, pues ya te crees más, right? You think now you're better than we are because you're going to school. And where do these messages come from? They come from the master as they whooped you because you didn't do the job right. They come from the patron of the hacienda that punish you if you didn't do what was supposed to. And that Patron beat the worker who went home and beat the wife and beat the children or beat the partner. And the mom who in her distress is maltreating the children and the children who are fighting among themselves because that rage has to go somewhere. And that the root of all of this is injustice. And we are a people that come from genocide. We are the people that come from injustice. And so although we may be resilient and we're survivors, we carry those spiritual soul wounds of all of the things that were done to our ancestors. And that's how it manifests. It manifests in anxiety and depression, in behaviors that are hurtful to us or hurtful to people we love. At this point in the interview with Doctora Flores, I thought back to my feeling of not belonging in the philosophy library. I visualized my dad being reprimanded in the fields, my parents' perpetual arguing, and the profound soul wound agonizing my Latinx family. What good does naming this soul wound even do? I personally believe it's essential um, to, to recognize them, to name them, in order to heal them. And this is not something that we have to do on somebody's couch. Sometimes we do, but there are many ways in which we can try to heal. But I think, you know, knowledge is power. And I see this very often with my students when they begin to take our Chicanx and Latinx studies courses, and all of a sudden there is this epiphany of, this is not my family. This is the remnants of colonization. This is how colonization and misogyny and heteropatriarchy have affected my family. This is how all these unjust patterns that I grew up with became unjust. Then we can make peace with the perpetrators in the family. We don't forget, we don't have to forgive. You know, I'm not Buddhist, I'll never get there. I'm, I'm not into forgiving unless there is accountability. Um, 
but we can recognize, okay, they have their own story. It's not my story. I don't have to own it. It doesn't have to control me. It does not have to control us. That being so, how do we pursue healing the soul wound? Or is healing even possible? I think there are traumatic experiences that you learn to live with, that you learn to walk with, so that they don't take over your life. And I I will tell my clients and I will tell my students, you know, especially when they're young. So you endured injustice in your family for the first 18 years of your life. Now you're away at college. How do you want the next 18 years to go? Do you want to carry that como tortuga? Do you want to carry all this pain and sorrow? Or do you want to turn around, sit down, stand up, look at it, run, work out, get it out of your body? You have to get the pain, the anger, the rage out of your body. So if you're a dancer, if you're an athlete, it's a lot easier than for those of us who are sedentary. You have to get that energy moving out of your body. And you have to cry, you have to weep, you have to rage, you have to scream all alone in the river. You have to learn to let go and change the ways we think about things. I am not a victim, I'm a survivor. And I have a right to be angry. I have a right to want justice. I have a right to demand accountability. We all have these powerful stories of resilience in our genealogy. We just need to find them. And I could think of my maternal grandmother who survived spousal abuse, who survived early widowhood and raised her son and my mother. Yes, part of the legacy was depression. Part of the legacy was tremendous anxiety, which every woman in my family has because of everything that she experienced and her mother experienced and the great-grandmother experienced. And yet somehow they managed to survive and create families and pass down tremendous intellectual, emotional, behavioral gifts. We have to look at both sides. And so how can we heal from all of this? Well, to heal the soul wound, we need, we need ritual. And whatever your tradition is, Whatever your tradition, every culture has ways of healing from trauma. We just need to connect to them, you know? Um, I've learned a lot from curanderas in Mexico. I've learned a lot from just meditating and remembering what my tia de Yerbera used to say when I was young and I didn't pay attention. And suddenly I'm beginning to remember because I'm opening up those channels so that I can retrieve those memories. And also in meditation, I invite the elders to come in and I see all of these women who came before and it's beautiful to see them. And they always leave a message. And sometimes it's not verbal. Sometimes I see something and you know the brain makes the connections. Right? So from a very... Um, meditative, spiritual, trance-like state. You can access information about the what happened. Even if it's not exactly what happened, it doesn't matter because your soul will recognize it as a truth and will see 
how you can deal with that truth in the present time. But then we can go all the way to neuroscience and think about, okay, how do I calm down my nervous system? Because my nervous system is triggered by what's happening now, but the triggering is also encoded genetically in terms of what happened before, and I don't need to know what it was. I, if I don't want to remember and if I don't want to access those things, I know that I am having physiological reactions of fear, of panic, of excitement, of apprehension, of joy. Okay, I like some of these, I don't like others. So how can I calm down the nervous system? I may learn to breathe, I may do yoga, I may meditate, I may burn sage and clean the whole space of my house. Maybe incense, maybe say the rosary, maybe pray to my favorite saints. And there are many, 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 many ways. And now there are apps for everything. (laughs) And during pandemic, you don't have to leave your house. You can do yoga online. You can meditate online. (laughs) You can do breathing exercises. The important thing is to recognize what happens in your body. And many of us are totally disconnected from our bodies because that's also um, related to trauma. If we are disconnected from our bodies, then it makes it very difficult to know what we can do and how we can respond to the physiological reactions that are related to current or intergenerational trauma. With the very real circumstance of mental health stigmas in Latinx communities, as well as the factor of inaccessibility to healthcare, our team asked Dr. Flores to expand on other methods of healing. I didn't say enough about the power of, of art um, and theater. And I think, again, depending, particularly with young people and children, uh, I think it's so, so crucial for them to have that avenue of expression. Um, and I think young people are now being challenged in ways that, I mean, I never even dreamed um, could ever exist given the conditions under which I grew up. You know, and I came of age when all we could, you know, really start worrying about was whether somebody was going to have a filet or a knife at a party. Um, now we're dealing with, you know, um, assault weapons that are brought to school with, you know, this very visible pandemic of racism that has always existed but was undercover for a long time. And young people have to negotiate this. There's um, a Chicano psychologist in Texas, Manuel Samarripa. Uh, His website is um, rasapsychology.org. Manuel has um, webinars. He's teaching an online class right now on Chicanx psychology. And very powerful, very accessible ways in which um, he and his partner, they, they teach the basic concepts going back all the time to the ancestors and how the elders in community were the first therapists. Because... Back in the day, people would go to the elders. And in in Native communities, that's still the case. You go to an elder for counsel. That is therapy. 
you know, we think of therapy as, you know, Sigmund Freud and the white man with the beard and the, and the pipe. Um, therapy happens in the kitchen between comadres, you know. Therapy happens in the football field with kids playing soccer, you know. Therapy happens in la lavanderia when the ladies are washing clothes and sharing stories and complaining about their partners or their children. You know, therapy is anytime we open our hearts in respectful communication. And I think that's part of, of colonization too, to think that there's only one way of healing and that only, you know, white men with a, with a pipe uh, are the ones who can do it. The ones who can heal us are ourselves in community. To hear this illuminating conversation in its entirety, please visit lrc.berkeley.edu. difíciles enfrente la pérdida de mi madre y tropece lo recuerdo como si fuera ayer no vengo a presumirles de lo que carezco no vengo de una familia con mucho dinero me enseñaron que en our inaugural episode of this podcast series titled cicatrices y sanaciones we spoke of cicatrices scars and how the usefulness of the x in latinx is to expose the racist, gendered, and classist subjugation wounds that colonization has bloodstained. In this chapter, we have found that identifying the soul wound in particular further fosters sanación. I am denouncing the thingification that legislates our bodies into categories of papeles. And if the soul wound were only an esoteric notion, the Valladolid debate over whether our indigenous ancestors had souls would have never been possible. In naming my soul wound, I am reclaiming my soul, however wounded it may be. We recognize the work of addressing our emotions while simultaneously dealing with the structures who created that emotional abyss. And this episode is in no way an attempt to slap a band-aid on a 500-year-old gash. Some might say that healing is not possible, but this entire narration was brought to you from an ivory tower that was not made for me. They got to tell me their version of how my people collapsed, in their words, in their books. I get to tell the story of healing with mine. That brings me peace and a piece of my soul finds sanación in that. May you find yours on this unique and non-linear path in La Queche. I would like to thank the ancestors for the gift of storytelling, without which none of this would have been possible. 
I would also like to thank Doctora Laura I. Perez, Doctora Yvette Flores, and the entire podcast research team, my family, my communities, and the generations after me that I will only meet in prayer for the opportunity to speak healing into truth and the capacity to imagine a different existence for us. Mm-hmm.